Hello and welcome to Fork Tongues, conversations with foreigners living in France. I'm Derek Rawson. I'm from Australia, but I've been living in France for more than 10 years now, first in Paris and now in Poitiers. I started this podcast as a way of rediscovering my love of France and French culture. With my guests, I delve into all aspects of living in France, from language and culture to meeting locals and discovering the food, giving you a glimpse of what daily life in France is really like, at least from a foreigner's perspective. We also talk about our home countries too. So not only will you learn about life in France, you'll also hear about life in other countries around the world as well. In this episode, number 13 of the Fork Tongues journey, I'm joined by another British guest, Leslie Webster, retired English teacher, passionate Francophile, and resident of nearby Neuville de Poitou, about a 30-minute drive from my home in Poitiers. I visited Leslie at her home in early December last year, and in the warmth of her living room, we discussed many aspects of her life in France, from her first visits as a young girl to deciding to move here permanently in the early 2000s, from learning French to becoming a French citizen, from getting to know her French neighbors to joining the local Jazz Festival Association. Our conversation was also full of advice on different ways to learn French or improve your level if you're already a French speaker. So I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Welcome to Fork Tongues, Leslie. Thank you very much for welcoming me into your home as well today. Here we are in Neuville de Poitou, but before we talk about this village that I don't really know very well, maybe you could tell me about the first time you came to France. Do you remember when that was and do you remember well, that experience? The very first time I came to France was with my parents back in the 19, early 1970s. One of my best subjects at school was French, so my mother decided that I needed to come to France to, to practice speaking the language. And so we came as a family. My father very courageously drove over here for the first time, and we spent uh, some time visiting the Chateau of the Loire, and then we went to Paris. And that's where my father was really brave with the traffic <laughs> in Paris, although it's not quite as bad. It wasn't quite as bad then as it is now. Um, and I don't actually remember a great deal about uh, speaking French or improving my French. I don't think I did really, but it was a first taste of France. And then a couple of years after that, um, I was studying French at, at college. I was working for, I'd got my A-level and I was um, working towards the Institute of Linguists French exams. And I came over for one summer vacation. I worked as an au pair. And with the family, we stayed in Brittany first and then with grandparents in on the Normandy coast. And I learned an awful lot then. Uh, the family, although they all spoke English, insisted on only speaking French with right. me. So I had to muddle through some somehow or other. And... Some of the things I learned then still come in use today. Um, like what? <laughs> domestic vocabulary. Um, I knew the word for a, a tea towel and silly things like that. And also the way of life and going to the Vivier to pick your shellfish um, directly from the fisherman and how to eat a crab and silly things like that. So that, those were my early experiences. I have to say, I didn't enjoy being an au pair. I wasn't really cut out for it, but it, it didn't put me off France. And when I met and married my husband, Duncan, he came from a, a family of Francophiles who'd spent many family holidays here. And so it was only natural that we should come to France together. And our first holiday was... 
suppose you'd call it a honeymoon. Uh, we rented a gîte in a small village called Erron, which you may know. It's um, 20, 25 miles from here. It's between Poitiers and Partenay. And we say that, and that was the very first time we visited Neville. Okay. We came here for a meal once. So <laughs> that was 41 years ago, 1980. We, um, we first found Neville. And what did you think of Neville at the time? Well, it was, as it is now, a market town. I suppose we were looking at it with different eyes then. It wasn't a potential place to live. It was just somewhere to visit on holiday. There wasn't a lot to see here. We found a nice restaurant, mm. we walked around the market, and that was it, really. And little did we know that uh, some 20 or so years later, we'd be, we'd be living here. That wasn't even part of our, our thoughts at that time. So how did that happen? Maybe we're jumping forward a, a lot, but uh, mm, how did that Not happen? really, because we, we just continued always coming to France on, on holiday, often renting gîtes because it was the cheapest way to do it. Mm. And just going to different areas of France, really enjoying it, enjoying the way of life, the countryside, the food, the wine. And we just felt that, well, we, we got to the stage where we said, it would be really nice to live in France mm -hmm. one day. And in 2002, a number of things happened, a number of circumstances we, we found ourselves in, led us to say, well, why are we waiting? Why not take the plunge now? And so we decided that we, we'd move to France. And we came over and started looking at houses. We went to estate agents and so on. We, we had a list of criteria for where we wanted to live. As far as climate was concerned, we wanted somewhere that was neither too hot nor too cold. Mm -hmm. We wanted somewhere where there were good transport links for getting back to the UK to visit family if and when necessary. We wanted somewhere that was in a wine-producing region. Uh, we wanted somewhere where, the, where people spoke French without too much of an accident. And the region around the Loire was always supposed to be the, the purest French. Mm. What else? Uh, we wanted to be part of a French community. We didn't want to live where there were other other expats, or certainly not other British people. I always said when people ask me, well, uh, why didn't you move to the Dordogne or one of these other areas that's become a bit of a, an enclave of, of Brits? I always answer that, well, if I'd wanted to live with British people, I'd have stayed in, in England. So you visited Neuville again, then? Well, when we started looking for a property, we soon realised that we couldn't just do it when we were over here on holiday. Mm -hmm. We wanted to feel really certain. We're, by nature, very cautious people. So we, we wanted to be absolutely certain we were doing the right thing. So we decided to rent somewhere first and um, started researching on the internet and actually found a place, sillily enough, only about five kilometres from Nervi in a little hamlet. And we, we rented that. But I think from almost the first weekend we, we were here, we, we came into Nerville to the market to shop. In fact, we came into Nerville to eat because we didn't have a kitchen. Okay. <laughs> Typically French, um, when you move into a rented accommodation, there's absolutely nothing in there, not even light bulbs. Okay, right. um, so, yeah, we came in to eat and we sort of looked around Nerville and said, I think we've been here before, but 
this is really nice. <laughs> we, we spent nine months visiting different towns in, in the area. Again, we had our list of criteria. We wanted to be in a town with all these shops and services within walking distance, but we didn't want to be in a too big a town. We wanted to be somewhere where we could become part of the community. What's the population? I think it's just under 6,000 of the latest count. So it's it's comfortable. And we know a lot of people now, sure. so uh, that's really, really nice. And in fact, that's one of the things that we were so pleasantly surprised by, the friendliness and welcome we got from the local Nevoas. It's been absolutely fantastic and something that we never experienced anywhere we lived in England. Right. It's just, this is home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we feel that it's home when we feel part of it and... It's hard to express how yeah. how content we are. From what I know about you, which is very little, uh, <laughs> I know that you did, though, teach English locally, and it seems that you really invested yourself in the community as well. Yes. Well, in fact, my real job, I worked as an English teacher for a, a language school, and the work was based from home, and I gave classes by telephone during the day. And it was mainly business executives, so they could be anywhere in France, working for large companies and who needed to improve their English for dealings with colleagues in other countries. And I did that for about 14 years. And fairly early on, within the first five years of being here, I think we um, decided that it might be an idea to form an English group for people who wanted to practice their English. A lot of people asked me whether I could help with lessons for their children. And I had to explain, well, I'm really not trained to do that. Um, I can help people who already have a certain level of English, but I'm really not into teaching it virtually from scratch. Mm -hmm. So I I had this idea for an English group, and this was based on something I'd experienced when I was at college in the UK, learning French. We had a group of people on a Friday morning speaking French, a lot of people who had holiday homes in France, or just people who studied French and wanted to keep up their level. And it was really a conversation group talking about um, the news. The tutor who led the group always recorded that morning's um, news broadcast from one of the French radio stations and would listen to that and discuss it and just talk about life in France and different aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that. And I thought I wanted to do the same sort of thing here. Didn't quite work out like that because Mm -hmm. I had a number of people who really hadn't spoken any English since they'd been at school and they were now retired. So we're talking about a long gap and uh, having to dredge up some very far off memories. And uh, some of the English I heard was so funny because it really was, as we used to speak in the 50s, (laughs) of course, language evolves and uh, they couldn't understand why we we no longer really say shall and uh, may so on. But it worked. It worked. Um, I did it for 10 years. And it, it, it only stopped, actually, with the pandemic. We could no longer use the local village hall. So it stopped then. And I, I don't think it will start again. I think people have lost the, the will to do it. <laughs> I think I have, to be more honest. Did any of those people become friends? Oh, yes, yes. Um, They're already friends. Several of them have. And in fact, even my next door neighbour came. And uh, now we have tea together. Well, 
We have tea one afternoon a week here, and she speaks English. And then the following week, we have coffee at her home, and I speak French with her. So you said yes, the locals were very welcoming. How else did that manifest itself, or in other ways, were you welcomed? Well, when we first arrived, we I think it was the day after we moved in. We were we were actually going back to the rented property because we hadn't moved everything across uh, immediately, and we saw just opposite a neighbour outside. And so we we stopped the car and introduced ourselves, said hello, and he was perfectly polite and pleasant. Fine, no problem. That afternoon, he came over and he said, I'm terribly sorry that I was so short with you this morning, but I was late for an appointment. And now we know him better. That is totally typical. Um, and he said, but my wife and I were wondering whether you'd be available next Tuesday evening to come round for a drink with us. I said, we said, yes, we'd be delighted to. And so when the appointed evening came, we went over the road. And it wasn't just with them. All the neighbours from this end of the road, and the 20, between 20 and 30 of them, were there. They'd all brought something to eat, something to drink. And we had a lovely evening meeting everybody and them welcoming us and saying, if there's anything you want, don't hesitate to ask. And it was just wonderful. And that sort of kindness has, has never stopped. So initially, we got established and got to know all the neighbours. We gradually got to meet other people in town. Some people hearing us obviously knew we were English and stopped to chat to us. And we got to know other people. We didn't want to inflict ourselves on people too too quickly. We didn't want to be seen as being pushy. So we, we were always a bit cautious, but we, we gradually got involved with different groups. We became volunteers for the local tourist association. We helped with things like translating their website into English. We help out with the various events they organised. In fact, I became a member of the management committee of the, the tourist office for a while. Um, we got involved with the Jazz Association. As music lovers, we, we always went to visit the, the concerts. And the president of the association said, well, why don't you come and join us? Come and help out. So we've been doing that for, I don't know how many years now, 10, 12 years, I think. Can you tell me a bit more about the Jazz Festival? That, that is where we first met. Uh, Indeed it is. Ago. Yeah, well, it's uh, an annual event run totally by volunteers. And this is one thing that really surprised us when we found out that it is, is not at all commercial. In the UK, if you went to a concert, you'd expect to pay a reasonable sum of money and it would be all professionally organised. There'd be some company, some organiser making a profit from it. This is totally non-profit making and it's financed mainly by sponsorship from local companies and from subsidies from the commune, the department, the region. And not only is it non-profit making or that that's not the goal of it, but most of the concerts are free. There's only one in each festival. The festival normally lasts three or four days. There's only one concert, which is sort of the headline star, big jazz name normally, where we charge admission. And even then, it's only 15 euros, so it's hardly a, a vast sum to pay. But all the other concerts are free. And every night, there are two different groups. 
So obviously we have to pay for the musicians and pay for their accommodation and their transport costs. So where does the money come from? Because the subsidies don't cover all that. So we sell food and drink. We, we have meals. Well, we have until recently sold a full meal, jazz meal, which is waitress served, the waitress being a, a volunteer. And we also have what we call resto jazz, a, like a fast food self-service option. And as I say, the, the festival lasts three or four days with three evenings. And then on the Sunday, we move into the adjoining park and have a sort of picnic in the park so everybody brings uh, their their Sunday lunch and there's there's jazz music to listen to in the afternoon. So that's a lot of work. I mean, how many people are involved in there? There are about 30 volunteers. Mm -hmm. We we already have the programme lined up for next year. So the work on that has, has been done and we have other concerts. We have a prelude to the festival in June. There are other concerts that we we organise throughout the year. There was one last week to end the season, as it were. So yes, there's a steady stream of work. What do you think about the live music scene in in Novido and in France more generally and and festivals? Something that's important and very alive? Yes. Yeah, I think it is. As, as well as Nerville, there are quite a few jazz festivals locally. There's um, Jazzero in Châtelot, which you may know, and Saint Benoît Swing, and we, we've been to concerts there. And I think it, it's good. There, there are, as well as jazz, there are a lot of other concerts. Really, whatever sort of music you're, you're into, you can find something often free. Not always, uh, it has to be said, but um, there are free concerts too. Do you ever go into to Poitiers to the, the tap? I've never been to the tap. In fact, we go to Poitiers less and less these days. Um, we, we used to go quite regularly, but so many shops have moved out of the centre mm-hmm. that it seems to have lost a bit. And I'm not so keen on all the redevelopment that's been done there, um, personally. And parking's a bit of a pain. So, yeah, we, we're actually planning to go next week. We, we're going to the cinema. We got into the habit of going to the cinema um, in the centre there. I must admit to watch films in VO in the original version because sometimes you just want to relax and be entertained and rather than have to think in French it's uh, it's nice especially for Duncan to be able to watch a film in English. So how is your French today? Um, mine's mine's okay I can handle anything I, I've even been uh, I've been on French television okay. as part of Nervon Jazz um, the local television station Francois came and did a, a feature on us and asked some of the volunteers to speak about being a volunteer and so I got my less than two minutes of fame that way and uh, I've also done French radio we did um, our local radio station did uh, or still does a broadcast from the tourist office and uh, Duncan and I went along to talk about um, not quite sure what we spoke about actually I think it was being uh, what English visitors would look for coming to this area mm-hmm. something like that yeah I, I don't have any problem speaking French although I know I have a very strong English accent. But I think that partly comes from teaching English. I think I, particularly over the phone, I place so much emphasis on always articulating my words, not speaking too quickly, and so on. And I tend to do that when I speak French. And of course, that's not how the French speak. It all comes out in a stream. 
you have been speaking French for a, for a long time now. Well, yes. yes. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it started school, my best, my favorite subject. And, you know, it's continued. But it's changed because when you move here, you realize that what you learn, and I'm sure you've heard this many, many times, and it's probably true in your own experience, that what you learn at school or anywhere else isn't at all how it is in real life. In the same way as English, the language evolves. So you, you've got to pick up new vocabulary, how people speak, um, all the slang. I think that's one thing that quite shocked me. All the words I'd learned, there are always alternatives, mm -hmm. sort of not really slang, but um, more informal terms that people use, which I was unaware of. I think being in, the, in regional France, uh, there are specific expressions to hear. Well, there is a local dialect, uh, Poitvin, which people have tried to teach me a few <laughs> words. And frankly, I, I, I can't, can't remember them because, you know, I have enough to remember anyway. And <laughs> I just think, well, it's hard, hard enough getting by in French, but to try adding Poitvin to that... <laughs> No, thank you. There's only there's only one word that I do know, which I rather like, and it's actually been adopted. And it was published in one of the big dictionaries, maybe La Russe, a year or two ago. And that is the word "bonnes," which is the sort of the opposite of "malaise." Mm -hmm. So "bonnes" is a good feeling, mm -hmm. and I like that. <laughs> I, th I think, yeah. I feel "bonnes" today. Yes, yes, I know that word. I didn't know that was a huh? mm, Apparently so. Yes. And you mentioned teaching over the phone. Did you enjoy that experience? What did you think of the level of French people in English today? Oh, well, I had people of all, all different levels. Some extremely good, some <laughs> extremely poor. But uh, French people always say or always tell me that the level of teaching in school is very poor. But I don't think it's any worse than how we were taught French in school in England, frankly. It's just that school teaching is done for a purpose. Basically, it's to pass exams. Whereas when you really need to speak the language, it's, it's a totally different situation. As I said, you, you find that what you learn at school is not how French is spoken today. So it, it's just different. But uh, teaching by phone was good because people had to really concentrate. The lessons only lasted 25 minutes. So it, it wasn't asking too much of them, although some thought it was. <laughs> And yes, I did enjoy it. It was a little strange not meeting people face to face, not having any company. In the 14 years I did the job, I didn't meet any of my fellow teachers. I spoke to one or two over the phone, but very, very rarely. I only saw my boss three times in all that time. Okay. Again, we corresponded by phone or by email, but we, we didn't actually meet. So it was a strange, slightly strange situation. But it suited me very well because I could work from home, which was lovely. I could more or less choose my hours. I, I told my boss when I'd be available and he then gave me students for those time slots. And uh, it was rewarding because I could hear the progress that people were making. I must admit I was very sceptical when I first heard about the job. thought, well, how can people learn like that? Mm -hmm. But they did. And um, a lot of them took the um, TOEIC exams, the Test of English for International Communication. And from their scores, I could see how well they'd progressed. And so what was your secret to, to helping them make progress? Oh, gosh. 
I don't know, just encouraging them. A lot of it came from building up people's confidence. They knew the basics. They just had to really concentrate and think about what they were going to say, not rush things, and just go for it, which basically is my approach to French as well. I was going to say that maybe that's good advice in any language. Mm -hmm. And another piece of advice, which is one that uh, I got from Duncan, I'm not sure that he meant it in quite the same way, because I think when he told me this, it was because he wanted me to shut up. But he did say, we are born with two ears and one mouth, and we should use them in the same proportion. (laughs) And listening really is important to learning a language. Um, Listening to pronunciation, listening to the words, the expressions people use. And it's a trick that I I started to do, and quite possibly still do, and that is on a Sunday morning when we walk into the market, we meet quite a few neighbours up and down the little pathway, and uh, everybody stops to have a little chat. And at first, I wasn't very good at small French small talk. So what I would do is listen to what somebody said to me, and then the next person I met, I'd repeat the same thing. And that worked well, because it got me into conversation with people, and it also helped me to learn these phrases, because after I'd repeated them two or three times, um, they were then in my mind. So I knew how to say, well, it's a, it's a miserable day today, <laughs> but I think it, it, the sun will come out later, and things like that. It seems to me that there are some very set expressions that everyone uses in, in those situations. Oh, and yes, yes. It's probably the same in the UK. Yeah. In Australia too, although I don't really remember it so much from Australia, but maybe I was a bit younger. Maybe the weather's better there. You don't (laughs) always have to talk about it. Yes. Well, maybe it's the other extreme now, too hot. Yes. Well, that is something, of course, over here. French people are never satisfied. It's either too hot, too cold, too wet, not enough rain. It's never perfect, you know, and, and when we say something, oh, it's a lovely day, the sun's shining. No, 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 it's not. <laughs> they, they must always complain. In fact, when um, Duncan and I got our French nationality, one of our French friends said to us, now you have the right to complain <laughs> as you're French. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. It reminds me of a, of a friend from my Paris days, an English guy, and he'd always uh, quote his, his grandmother who would say, uh, mustn't grumble. <laughs> yes. The, yeah. the difference between the English and... Uh... I think it is, yes, yes. And uh, another big difference is if people say, how are you? English people just say, fine, thank you. Whatever ills they've got, French people will tell you, and they will go into great detail to tell you. And quite often detail you really don't want to hear, mm-hmm. but they, they love talking about health. I'm sure you've noticed that too. Yes. Are there other parts of French culture that have been hard to navigate or surprising, I mean, despite your long history of coming to France? No, I, don't, I can't think of anything. Um, any advice, perhaps, for listeners who are, you know, planning a trip to France about how to be polite or, I don't know, how to interact with French people? I think the French are very polite and um, whenever you go into a shop, you always say bonjour. Mm. Um, everybody is polite in saying please and thank you, which always strikes us when we go back to the UK, how different it is because we've, we're in the habit of doing it now. And when you go into an English shop and you're just totally ignored, you think, well, <laughs> do they want our customer or not? That's something that is quite different. No advice for English visitors. Um, what did you tell the, the French radio when they were saying what... Uh, oh, it's a long time ago. <laughs> I can't really remember. Uh, I should have pulled out my notes. <laughs> That's fine. 
Well, maybe we can talk about your French and, and what helped the most. I mean, apart from perhaps being immersed living here, do you read daily? Do you oh, yes. watch the French yeah. news? We, we, like one of the things we didn't do deliberately from the start was we didn't have a satellite dish or any way of listening to or getting British television. Uh, we just said, right, we live here. We're going to be as, as close to the French as we can be. So we only... We still only have French TV. Although I must admit that these days with um, digital television, there are so many films and series in English that we do tend to watch a number of those. But uh, we always watch the news. We watch um, every day religiously Des Chiffres des Lettres, which is the, the French version of a TV game in England called Countdown. And it's a, a letters and numbers mm. game. It's, it's been going forever in France. I remember seeing it when we were first here in the Gite 40 odd years ago. Okay. But we always watch that and play along. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the whole, whole <laughs> fun of it. Who wins? Um, well, Duncan's very good at numbers. <laughs> <laughs> And I do the letters. No, actually, he he surprises me sometimes and comes <laughs> up with words where I have better words than I have. Uh, so we also always watch the news, the weather. We watch quite a few documentaries. Um, some of the French series and films we find hard work to follow because of the slang expressions, colloquialisms that are used that uh, we would rather in the evening relax than have to think about those but there there are a number of um, documentaries that we do enjoy watching music shows lots of music shows on french television compared with the uk we found your favorite french musicians singers yes well one of my favorites isn't actually french but he's french canadian garou we we saw him live uh, in nantes a few years ago great show yes uh, quite a few actually Many of them jazz-oriented, and of course we've had quite a few of them who've come to Geneville, who we've got to know as well, which is nice. So um, people like Stéphane Belmondo. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of local musicians, and there, there's a, a family of musicians, the Henri family, who we've got to know. And I don't know if you saw last weekend last weekend or the weekend before, there was um, a big hold-up on the A89, the motorway that comes from Switzerland, Evian, across France. And traffic was blocked on the motorway for several hours. And amongst them was a van containing some musicians, including members of the Henri family, who'd been doing a, a corporate event in Evian and who got stuck. And apparently they debated what they should do, whether they should sort of binge watch a Netflix series or something like that. But I said, no, we're musicians. We're going to write a song about this situation. So they wrote a song and they said, well, having written a song, let's do a video clip for it. So they made a video and then they posted it on the internet and it went viral. <laughs> and it's been featured, the news broadcasts featured it. So it's been on BFM, it's been on France Television okay. News. And last time I looked, they'd had nearly 150,000 views on YouTube. So it, it was just really fun. They're brilliant, brilliant musicians, in my opinion, and very, very nice people. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before becoming a French citizen. Mm. What made you take that step and and what was the process like for you? Well, we looked into it about five years after we arrived because you have to be resident five years before you can apply. And I downloaded the list of documents that we'd have to supply and so on. We went through it. I said, this is very complicated and 
potentially very expensive because you have to have copies of your birth and marriage certificates, your parents' birth and marriage certificates, all of which have to be translated by a registered translator here. You can't just translate it yourself. You have to give details of all your finances. You have to give basically your, your life history. I just thought, well, I'm not sure... Firstly, whether we want to share all that information. And secondly, whether we want to spend the time that it will take to do that. And back in 2008, 2009, we said, well, we don't need to do it. We won't bother. And of course, then the referendum came along and Brexit was voted for. So we thought, perhaps this is the right time to do it. So we revisited it and we put together our application and we were very fortunate that eventually we were accepted as French citizens. Mm. We're very, very proud of that. Mm. And it's, uh, is there a ceremony when you... Yes, there is. Um, there's an, a ceremony at the, in our case, in, in Poitiers at the Prefecture, where we were handed our French citizen pack, our certificate. We'd already had our names published in the official journal, and um, we'd had our letter from, from the president working as French citizens. Okay. And the ceremony came sometime afterwards because they wait till they've got a certain number of people. But there were, I can't remember the exact numbers, but around 100 of us, probably 70 different nationalities mm -hmm. who'd received French citizenship. And our local mayor came with us, mm -hmm. to, which was very nice. And our MP was there to support us as well. So it, it was a very nice ceremony. And in fact, I said at the time that this was the probably the second most significant official event to our wedding it really was that that important for us to have that recognition of being French. And after that, did you feel differently here? No, <laughs> not not really. Um, as far as day-to-day -day life is concerned, uh, there aren't many differences. It does mean we can vote in the presidential election next year, which is nice because obviously we pay our taxes here, so it's nice to be able to register our vote too. But apart from that, well, the other big advantage of having nationality is that we haven't needed to go through the process that all other expat Brits have done of getting residency cards, mm -hmm. which sounds a nightmare for many people. So that's been a, a relief, I suppose. Yeah, you kept to the British nationality as well? Or we have, yeah. yes. When you're traveling, we do like to travel around the world. It's, it's sometimes useful to have a British passport. It depends where we're going, really. There used to be a restaurant in Neuville with a, was it one or two Michelin stars. It was one Michelin one. star. Do you ever eat there? Oh, we certainly did, yes. <laughs> well, we ate there before Fabien Dupont, who was the chef who earned, uh, earned the Michelin star. Before he was there, we, we ate there. And he and his wife came along. And in 2005, we had our silver wedding. We had a big party here in the garden for local friends. We invited friends from the UK to come and join us. And about a dozen came over. So we had a weekend full of celebrations. And on the Sunday, we took our English friends to, to lunch at the San Fortuna. Mm -hmm. And that was the first year that... Uh, Fabien and his wife Aurélie were there. And yes, he, he earned his Michelin star. Sadly, he, uh, he lost it uh, after a few years. Mm. And um, in the last couple of years, he has set up a new restaurant 
called the the Air des Vey, which you might know next to the airport. So we go there now. But the big disadvantage is we can't walk. Okay, yes. <laughs> are there other restaurants here in Neuville now? Yes, there are. There's um, a... I don't quite know how to describe it. A local restaurant um, serving just lunches during the week. So basically it's for local workers. But good value, good food, nice atmosphere. We like it there. We, we go quite regularly. It's um, a nice, relaxed atmosphere. And we know the people there. Often we know quite a lot of the other diners. So that's <laughs> nice. There's a new place opened on the main road. where It's been taken over, in fact, and renamed. Haven't been there yet. Oh, and there's a wine bar, Pictavino, which is very nice too. Sounds like there's more here than one expect for a sort of relatively small town. Um, is it is it growing as well? Or? It is growing. Um, it's very popular. And it, it's a hub for a lot of local villages that don't have any facilities, certainly not restaurants. Sadly, the days when every village had its own restaurant have, have long gone. That's progress, I guess. But yes, um, Neville's bustling. It's nice. Do you cook French food at home? Yes, yes. Well, we always shop locally. We try to buy locally produced products, seasonal products. And I suppose our, our cooking is a bit like us, franglais. Um, so we eat not quite the same as the French, but it's very similar. Is there anything in France that you sort of stay away from uh, culinarily? Um, well, we've tried most things. Personally, don't like oysters. Mm -hmm. I've tried quite frequently, actually, because everybody says, yeah, you must must try these. You yes. must eat them. <laughs> no, just do nothing for me. Tête de veau is okay. something that I really, you know, veal's head. It just doesn't doesn't sound nice, doesn't look nice, doesn't smell nice. And the dreaded, the dreaded Andriette okay. is another thing that is not, uh, not really to my taste. But there again, when I speak to my French friends, they don't like them either. An acquired taste for everybody. Yeah. I was going to ask about foie gras because it's almost Christmas. Oh, yes. It's a typical Christmas. Love it. Mm -hmm. okay. Absolutely love it. And I'm afraid I don't have any issues about it. It's just think it's delicious and I will be eating it. Have you ever prepared it yourself? Haven't, no. Because there are only two of us, it doesn't seem worth the effort to do it with a lot of things. I'd, I'd just rather go and buy it. We get it from our local charcuterie and we know that it's really good and we can buy just the amount we want. So why bother? True. Are there English things that you miss, either food or other? Um, English foods, not really. Things to do with English life? The one thing I think I do miss is theatre. When we were in the UK, we used to go to both local theatre and to theatre in London reasonably regularly and saw some wonderful performances. And we really don't do that here. We, we go to the local Amdram group who, who have one production per year of a, I suppose you call it a boulevard comedy, which is fun because it's people we know acting and it's typical amateur dramatics. But other than that, we've been to theatre in Paris. We saw a great show called How to Become Parisian in One Hour. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of it. I think I have, yeah. It's It's very funny. But it's in English, mm -hmm. or franglais anyway. But other than that, no, we, we, don't, we really don't do the theatre. 
I was recently told about by French friends uh, an English comedian, uh, Paul Taylor. Oh yes, yes, I. I haven't taken the time to look at his special yet, but um, mm. I did see a, a clip and it seemed quite funny and, and quite well done, switching between English and French. Yes, yeah, it's very impressive. His French is extremely good, and his humour. He does a great thing about um, kissing. How when you arrive anywhere, you have to kiss everybody, and uh, how long it takes, and so on. So yes, he's he's good. I guess that's not really a problem we have anymore. Wondering how many kisses we should give to the the person because uh, we don't kiss like that anymore. Yes, I was told recently though that it hasn't always been the case that people kiss as much,、mm. and it's only been in the last thirty or so years that people do. And up until that time, it was really only for for family and very close friends.、Mm-hmm. But even we've noticed since we've been here. That it got to the stage where everybody you know you have to stop and kiss, <laughs>、um, which seemed a bit extreme, really. <laughs>、um, I think for Saxons it's it's not never felt totally natural to、no. me to kiss everybody. For me, it was particularly strange to to kiss sort of male friends. It's、um, mm. giving a kind of a, a male hug and、yeah. a slap on the back is completely natural, but、um, mm-hmm. kissing on each cheek、uh, not so much. But it's funny uh, with a, a good French friend of mine.、Um, he said that having a hug made him feel a little bit uncomfortable. He wasn't used to that. Vive la France! <laughs> exactly.、Mm. Um, you mentioned before that you read the newspaper. I think that read the news. What's your reading in French habit like? Well,、um, I read both the newspaper and French news sites on the internet because I, I like very much to get different angles on the news. It's interesting when there's an international story and you read it from the French viewpoint and also from the British BBC viewpoint. I find that quite interesting.、Mm-hmm. Seeing how one side will focus on one area and the other side will focus on a totally Different area of, of the same subject. I also read novels in French. I try to alternate. I read a novel in French and one in English. And I mentioned the neighbour who I have tea and coffee with. We also swap books.、Mm-hmm. So contemporary and classic French literature. It tends to be well at the moment. It tends to be my neighbour's taste in、okay. literature. So I'm reading a lot about the Second World War,、okay. um, which is quite interesting to find out how well what it was like for French people during the occupation and afterwards when things didn't、uh, well took a long, long time to really settle down again after that.、Uh, is there anything that you've read recently that you really enjoyed in French? Yes,、uh, that may or may not be translated into English for. No, I, do, I don't read any translated works.、Uh, well, unless it's from languages I don't speak, but、uh, English and French tra-、yes. translated because I think it's always better to read things in their original version.、Um, recently, there's nothing particularly recently. I'm putting you on the spot.、So. No, I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't think. One of the things you asked someone in your、uh, an earlier interview、mm. was about whether they'd ever felt like writing the book about their experiences.、Mm-hmm. Yes. So I actually thought I would show you this because when we arrived, as I said, we we found that there were a lot of things that we we had to learn about the language and also the French way of life and French way of doing things.、Mm-hmm. And we decided that it might be a good idea to write a book about. A practical guide for other English speakers in the same situation. What's the name of the book? It's、What、called it "Using Tradesmen in France: A Practical Guide and Glossary for English-Speaking Homeowners,"、mm-hmm. and it goes through things like getting an estimate, finding a tradesman, and checking out that he's legit. 
planning permission, legal obligations, finances, a lot about the language and mm-hmm. just a sort of vocabulary need, a glossary at the end, all sorts really. Okay. And so this was published in 2009. It's well out of date. It's, uh, <laughs> it's out of print. Um, but that's just uh, an example of what we did because okay, yes. um, cool. we thought, yeah. What was the experience of, of writing it and publishing it like? Well, it, it was good fun writing it because we've worked together in the past. We worked together in the UK. So it, it was nice to be able to do work on a project together. Publishing, it was a good good learning curve. Mm-hmm. We didn't perhaps pick the right publisher because they didn't really have enough experience of selling the book in France. Mm-hmm. But it, it did sell a few copies in the UK. Yeah, it was fun. Okay, great. And what was the experience of doing work on the house like? Uh, <laughs> um, interesting um, and quite, quite different from how it works in the UK. How you contact people, how they, their reaction. You'd leave messages on people's answering, answer phones and they wouldn't respond. And you think, well, why is this? And we, we actually learnt over time that if they didn't respond, it meant either they didn't have the time, that they already had a, a full order book, or we'd pick them out for doing a particular job and they, that wasn't one that they really did. They would only reply if, if they had a positive response to give you, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. We learnt a lot about vocabulary and um, how things actually work in terms of getting a quote for the job. And once you've signed off on that quote, that's a legal document. And on both sides, you then have responsibilities. And we're very fortunate. We've found some very, very good tradesmen. We, we don't do DIY. We're, we're mm-hmm. really not into that. So if anything goes wrong in the house, then it's on the phone to get someone in. And um, we, we've built up good relationships with local tradesmen. And uh, we had an experience last week where our central heating boiler broke down. So we had no heating and no hot water. Wow which was um, not so good, one of the really, really cold days. So got onto our heating engineer and he, he was around within a couple of hours, identified the problem, told us that sadly it might take four or five days to get the part because at the moment there are shortages and I'm sure you're aware for most things mm. like that. But he lent us electric radiators and so we, we were able to keep warm. But then the next day, had a phone call. We've got the part. Can we come and fix it? Yes. Okay. So, in fact, we were only without um, without heating and hot water for 48 hours. So um, we felt that because we've had this relationship with the man for nearly 20 years, that mm. we got the best service mm. that you could, you could want, really. Brilliant. So do you think you'll ever update the, the book? No, no. <laughs> it's not worth doing. It would be a lot of work. And I think times have moved on. I think these days everybody's got access to the internet and we'll just use that. Mm-hmm. Books like that are not ones that are really going to sell. Perhaps another kind of a book, or I don't know, a no. fiction, or something about language in France today? No, yeah. I think... Uh, the memoirs of an ex-English I think if I, if, I, <laughs> if, I were the, if I were a few years younger, maybe. Uh, I, my one big passion is genealogy and doing family history research, and I'm writing that, but that's actually to pass on to members of the family rather than for publication, a general publication. So that's my big project. Are there any branches of the family in France? 
Um, well, I always felt there should be, because whenever we came to France, as soon as we drove off the ferry, whichever port it was, I always felt at home, so I thought there should be. haven't found any direct ancestors who were from here, but I do have Huguenots in the family tree, so I suspect they might. I want them to have originally come from France, let's put it that way. I don't, don't know, and I don't know that I'd ever be able to find out if they did. But I do have one case of um, one uh, wayward daughter of a family who ran off to France okay. and ended up in a nunnery. Okay. <laughs> and was, uh, was um, what's the word? Oh, I forget words in English, which is very frustrating. Um, she was... Um, her father refused to recognise her after that. There's a word that I can't... Di- well, more than disinherited, disowned. Disowned is the word, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I forget words too, yes, both in English and uh, well, in French as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like, yes, in, in, even if there aren't any uh, French roots, well, you're here now, uh, mm. home, and uh, oh, it sounds like you're really enjoying life here, which is great. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. You're very welcome. It's been good fun. Thanks again, Leslie. It really was a pleasure to meet you again after all these years. And I look forward to returning to the Nouvelle Jazz Festival, exercising my two ears. I have to say Duncan's advice to Leslie that Leslie shared with me during our talk about the importance of listening, both when it comes to learning another language and in general, struck me as being très juste, advice to be heeded. I did a quick Google search that revealed the quote actually comes from the Stoic philosopher from ancient Greece, Epictetus, who said, we have two ears and one mouth so that we can listen twice as much as we speak. Or, in another formulation, nature hath given men one tongue but two ears, that we may hear from others twice as much as we speak. Of course, there is no shortage of quotes on stoicism on the internet, and I admit I went down a bit of a rabbit hole searching for another that somehow echoed not only Leslie's advice, but our conversation as a whole. An impossible task, really, so no surprise that I was unsuccessful. But when I did the same search in French, des oreilles, une bouche, I found a source that misattributed the above quote to Confucius, the Chinese philosopher, which opened another door. And I found this. We have two lives, and the second begins when we realize we only have one. So if you like that, maybe it will encourage you to start learning French, or maybe even move here. If not, if you don't like it, if it's too cute for you, don't worry. Like Groucho Marx said of his principles, if you don't like them, I have others. Anyway, let me know what you think by sending an email to forktonguespodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening.